This is a second generation church and Jesus will rebuke them. So again, why these seven? Why not over a hundred? Because these seven represent real people in real cities with real problems. And because the chief shepherd loves his church, and because the chief shepherd not only loves these seven churches, but all of his churches, he sent us these seven letters so that we can study from them. Welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Revelation, the final book of the Bible, which consists of three sections, the time prior to the writing of the book, the time of the writing, and the future of which most of the book is concerned. Today we begin a message entitled, when Your Love is Gone, in which Dr. Brogy, from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, begins to look at seven churches that Jesus addresses through the Apostle John. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl as he brings us up to speed before he talks about the first church, the church at Ephesus. Take God's Word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1? Most people can at least find Revelation in Genesis, the first and last book. But very often they don't know the difference between the two. In Genesis, the earth is created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis, you have the first rebellion. In Revelation, you find the final rebellion. In Genesis, sin enters into the human race. In the Revelation, it comes to an end. In Genesis, the curse begins. In the Revelation, it is ending. In Genesis, death begins. In Revelation, it is forever squished and gone. In Genesis, man is banished from the garden. In the Revelation, he's brought back into the garden. In Genesis, man is given dominion, but it's removed because of his sin. In the Revelation, it is restored because of the gift of righteousness. We are in an exciting verse-by-verse study of this marvelous book. And today we turn a corner as we come into the second section where Jesus addresses seven literal actual churches. Now there's all kinds of organizations in this world, all kinds of uh, fellowships and clubs and so forth, but there's nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, like a spirit-filled, loving, local church. It is the greatest institution on the earth that God has developed. And a healthy church is an awesome testimony and it has tremendous power to influence the people of their generation. So here today, we will look at Jesus' address to seven churches specifically. We will look today at the church at Ephesus. We want to begin this morning in verse 19 where we left off last time. So follow along in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1 beginning now in verse 19. Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. 
and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, and for the benefit of those of us who have been here who are trying to learn the book of Revelation, let me set the context for you. Many times, to understand an immediate context, you have to see the broad context. And when you see the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details will take on more meaning. We left off on verse 18. We come today to verse 19, which is really an outline of the book. Write the things which you have seen. Write the things which are. And then he says, write the things which will take place after these things. Three sections of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the past. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the present. And chapters 4 through 22 deal with the future. You could certainly subdivide the book into smaller portions, but God gave us the key right in the front door of the Revelation so that we would not misinterpret it. God gave us a divine outline for this critically important book. Now, we've already discovered in verse 7 that the theme of the Revelation is found in verse 7. He is coming with the clouds, but the outline is right here in verse 19. The things which you have seen, that's the past. The things which are, that's the present. The things which are after these things. After these things. Metatata. The first three words of chapter 4 and verse 1 are the last three words of verse 19 of chapter 1. So in chapter 1, you see a picture of what John saw that we studied last week, the things that were. And so he wrote down for us the introduction to the book, the greeting from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, and then gave us a marvelous picture of the glorified Christ. Some of you said that was so helpful to me last week because some of us just have a picture of Jesus walking through the dusty streets of Israel. And while He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, He is now reigning and ruling in His glorified body, and it's important that we see Him as He is right now. The things present... That's the seven churches that we're going to study, and we'll take one week for each church, God willing. And then those things after these things, those are the future issues in the book. Those things that are yet to take place. And so we'll see a picture of the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5, and then in beginning in chapter 6, with the four horsemen of the apocalypse all the way through, we will see the seal, trumpet, and bold judgment culminating with the second coming of Christ in His millennial reign. Or to say it differently, chapter 1 is about the Christ, chapters 2 and 3 about the church, and chapters 4 through 22 about the consummation. We find in chapter 1 Christ in His glory, and chapters 2 and 3 Christ in His church, 
But then in the rest of the book, Christ in His judgment. Now this is important, this outline, because again, it will keep you on track so that you will not misinterpret this book. Now look at verse 20, if you will. As for the mystery of the seven stars, this is a transitional verse, but it's still part of the vision because it explains the vision. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw, of course, he's referring back to the vision that we studied very carefully last week. Look back on your page in verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And so now here in verse 20, he tells us that the seven stars represent seven angels. And we will see that these seven angels are over the seven churches that we are going to study in chapters 2 and 3. And I hope to show you today that these are not heavenly angels, but these are pastor angels, so to speak. The seven stars are the seven angels, and we will see that the seven churches are the seven lampstands. That's what he says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now remember how the book began in our opening introductory message to the Revelation. In chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation, apocalypsis, means to unveil. And so God gives us an unveiling of the glorified Christ in heaven, which God gave to who? To Him, to Jesus Christ, to show His bondservants. That's us. The things which must soon take place because once these events happen, we saw the word soon means fast. They will take place very, very quickly. Taxus, we get our word tachometer from it. And He sent, and notice, communicated it by His angel. Now, if you have the NASB, you will see the word communicated is footnoted, and it brings you out into the margin, and you see an alternate way in which to translate the Greek verb, and you could translate it signified. In fact, many English translations render it that way. I like the word signified because the first four letters are sign, S-I-G-N, signified. In other words, it is a particular word that describes a symbol that has meaning to it. John uses it all the way through his gospel. He speaks not of miracles, but of signs because he uses a specialized word for miracle, a miracle with a message. And so Jesus wants us to understand that he's going to communicate this revelation in signs, and each of the signs have very, very important meanings. So for instance, in Revelation chapter 12, the devil is called the great red dragon with a long tail that sweeps away a third of the stars out of the heavens. Now we will see in Scripture the term star is used of angels. It can refer to a literal star or it can refer to an angel. And we'll also see it can refer to a pastor. I'm a star. Star is born. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, we will study in Revelation 13 a beast coming up out of the sea. Again, it's signified. He's not talking about a literal beast like some Godzilla but he's speaking of this coming Antichrist who will come up out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations. So people ask me all the time, Pastor, do you take the Bible? Do you interpret it 
Literally or symbolically? And the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, I interpret symbols, but once you understand the meaning of the symbol, then you literally believe it. And so I want to emphasize that a symbolic interpretation does not dismiss a literal belief in the Word of God. Now the code for understanding the Revelation is sometimes within the Revelation itself. We just read in verse 20, some of the mystery was lifted. We now know what a lampstand is. We now know what a star is. We know what an angel represents. He just told us. If he didn't give us verse 20, we might be guessing. So much of the revelation will interpret itself. You just read the next verse or the next paragraph. We saw that critical to understanding the revelation, and this is why I taught you the book of Daniel before we planted our feet here, is the prophet Daniel. Because he gives the prophetic schedule for the revelation. And he will give us many symbols that are interpreted. But most of the symbols in the revelation, if they're not interpreted in the book themselves, is interpreted in the rest of the Old Testament. There are 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses of the Revelation. Now, sometimes you'll hear a pastor or a theologian say, oh, 600 or 800, but they're double counting. There are parallel texts that are repeated, but there's 300 specific allusions. That's 74% of the book of Revelation. And yet, the allusions are never specifically introduced, like Moses said or David said or Jeremiah said. But they're assumed you have a certain knowledge. And so Revelation is an ignored book because the Old Testament is a closed book to many people. For many of you, the uh, only marked up section of your Bible is the Psalms and the Proverbs, and the rest of it is pretty clean. And so if we don't know our Old Testament, it will be difficult to understand Revelation. So you be patient with me because there are many, many brand new Christians who are just cracking the Bible for the first time in both these services and on our other campuses, and I will laboriously explain it to them. And if you don't want me to do that and you start yawning, it tells me how out of touch you are with what you are supposed to be doing, and that is helping new Christians to grow. You say, well, why didn't God just interpret the symbol for us? There's a reason for it. One, when you see a symbol and then you have to think about what the symbol means, it causes you to reflect and to ponder and to get this message deep down into your heart. Not to mention that many of the symbols help us to clearly see the picture. The fact that he tells us seven churches are pictured by seven lampstands. What a marvelous, beautiful picture. Especially in a day when there was no electricity, lampstands in a home or a business or a gathering was absolutely critical at night to dispelling the darkness. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So he says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works. That's what a church is to be. A lampstand, a light to dispel the darkness of sin all around us. Now, before we open the first letter and read it for ourselves, let me make some general observations concerning these seven letters. First of all, these are literal churches. 
These are not epics of time and church history. These are literal churches that represent real people, not only in that generation, but every generation. Here's a map here for you of the seven churches. You can see we're going to follow them right as they were written. Ephesus up to the top of the horseshoe and back down again, ending with Laodicea. That's the exact order that Jesus unfolds these seven churches for us. Now, the order follows a circular path of seven postal districts that existed in first century Rome. If you remember from Daniel chapter 6, we studied King Darius, the famous Persian emperor. We met him when Daniel was in the lion's den. And one of the things that he was known for, this section of the world was part of his empire, is he developed a network of roads paved and leveled. They were called highways. And they were literally highways. They were higher than the road around them. They built it up with stone. The Roman government would later perfect the, the road system such that literally all roads led to Rome. And God in His sovereignty at just the right time and the fullness of time brought His Son into the world with a universal language, with the Roman peace, with a Roman road system in which to spread the gospel. But the common people typically could not go on the highway because there was a tax, a toll that you had to pay as in many toll roads today. So they would go on the low way. They would go on the byway, the hedge that was adjacent to the highway. And so Jesus tells us in Luke's gospel, go into the highways and the byways and bring them into his feast. He was basically saying, go to the rich, go to the poor, go to the connected, go to the unconnected. He's not a respecter of persons. Bring them all in. And they had also developed not only a marvelous road system, but a fantastic postal system. Herodias, the Greek uh, historian, was so impressed with the postal system that was initially developed by Darius that he wrote these words, uh, they are, if you've ever been to the New York City main post office, if you're ever in New York City, you can't miss it. It's two blocks long, all these beautiful Corinthian columns. And you go inside and on the wall is the quotation from Herodias, the Greek historian. And he's commenting, if you know the context, on the postal system that was in existence when this letter was written. Neither snow nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And so here was a letter that would go to seven different postal districts. And John specifically writes to these seven churches and not others. Why seven churches? Why not three? Why not ten? There's over a hundred known churches in this region of the world. Why didn't he write the church at Rome? Why not the church in Jerusalem that the apostles initially gave leadership to? Why not the church at Antioch? Why not Coloss? Colossae was six miles away from Laodicea. Why didn't they go there? Troas, it's up in this same region. Why didn't he write to the church at Troas? Most of you remember the church at Troas, right? Remember that man who fell asleep in church? Literally, hmm? And he fell down from the second story and was dead. And Paul the Apostle raised him back up. Why didn't he write to them? There's a reason. Let me give you four reasons today. You might want to jot them down. Number one, he wrote to these seven 
so that you could not misstate the book, so that you could not put a early date in the book. We established not only from the historical record, but from within the Scripture, that the date that Christians had believed from the time of the church fathers, 95 A.D. was when this book was written. But in more recent years, there's a view, we'll discuss it again later on, it's called the preterist view of interpreting the Revelation. And the preterist view that is held by guys like Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, R.C. Sproul, and a number of others I won't bother to mention, says that the whole book was written and completed before 70 A.D. So they would say all the future events that we're going to study in chapters 6 through 19, with the exception of the bodily return of Jesus from heaven, is all history. It already happened. Now, this was a view that was initially started by Roman Catholics. And one of the reasons they started it was basically to usurp the place that God had given Israel. To say that the Roman Catholic Church was the new Israel. And some of the Protestant reformers embraced that. They just put a different spin on it. They said, well, the body of Christ, born again Christians are the new Israel. Oh, no, no, we are not. God has a plan for Israel. And we will see that one of the functions of the Great Tribulation in the Old Testament called the time of Jacob's trouble is to bring the Jewish people to faith in the one whom they pierce. They will look at Yeshua and they will say, Hamasiach, He is the Messiah. And so this is not a history book. These are future events. How do you know that, Pastor? How can you be so sure just from the church fathers and other things? All you have to do is read these seven churches that he wrote. For instance, take the church at Ephesus. Jesus today will say they had left their first love. And he will also mention that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. Now, if John had written the Revelation in 65 A.D., as some say, with all of it fulfilled by the time Rome comes in and, and crushes Jerusalem, then such a statement would have overlapped with Paul's letter to the Ephesians in his letters to Timothy. And yet, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he describes it as one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. Or take the church at Smyrna. It didn't even exist when Paul marched upon the Roman roads. Or take the church at Laodicea. Three times in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the church at Laodicea is mentioned. And they're commended. They're a wonderful church. But not at this time in human history when Jesus writes a letter to them because this is a second generation church and Jesus will rebuke them. So again, why these seven? Why not over a hundred? Because these seven represent real people in real cities with real problems and because the chief shepherd loves his church and because the chief shepherd not only loves these seven churches but all of his churches, he sent a these seven letters so that we can study from them, that we might learn from them, which brings us to the third reason why he addresses seven churches. When you read Christ's assessment of all seven churches, there's one common phrase in all seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not to the church, but to the churches, plural. He wants the seven churches not just to read their letter, but he wants all seven of these churches in Asia Minor, 
in the province of Asia, not the continent of Asia as we call it today, but it was a province within Rome. He wants all seven churches to read it so that they can learn from each other and guard their hearts and be edified together. But he wrote these not just for those seven churches, but for the churches throughout the time that Jesus is building his church. The letter to the Corinthians, the letter to the Romans wasn't just for them. It's for us. It's for Christians in all generations to read. And so as we read through these churches, we would be wise to do some self-analysis because we might not be either corporately or individually where we think we are. It's possible to be a church like the church at Philadelphia with a great opportunity. It's possible to be a church like the church at Ephesus that had left its first love. And so we need to look carefully and to see what Jesus says because what Jesus thinks about the church is what's important. Not what I think about our church. Not what the church growth people think about our church. What Jesus says about the church is, is what is critically important. But there's a fourth reason why he addresses these seven churches, and that not only does he address congregations as a whole, he addresses individuals within the congregation. Remember, this church is the sum total of all of its members. If everyone in this church were just like you, what would Community Bible Church be like? And so Jesus says, let him who has an ear. Anybody here have an earlobe? Dr. Pentecost, one of my favorite professors in seminary. You say, anybody here have an ear? Then listen up to what the Lord Jesus says to you. Now, we're going to see that not only does he give commendations, he also gives rebukes. And it's possible to think that you are one way when in reality you are not. Now, there's a pattern, and let me just remind you of the pattern. Each of the seven letters ends with the same admonition. Everyone has an ear, listen to what he says to the churches. And each of the seven churches begins with a character trait of Jesus. And we will see that. And the character traits that we will find in the seven churches, with the exception of one, come right out of chapter one. Why don't you go this week, go back, and see if you can match up the character traits of Jesus in the seven churches and where they come from in chapter one, and come back and tell me which church doesn't have a character trait, and tell me why. Mm, there's an exercise for you. Now, he describes each church by beginning with himself, because each church needs to keep their eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then after he gives a character trait with all seven churches, he gives an evaluation, though the evaluations are different. With two of the churches, number five and seven, Sardis and Laodicea, he says nothing good about those churches. He doesn't start by saying, well, let me tell you all the good things. He goes right to the rebuke after he describes himself. With two of the churches, number two and number six, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he says nothing bad about them. And so most churches say, oh, we're like Smyrna or we're like Philadelphia. Well, I hope we are. He just goes right to the good. But with the other churches, one, three, and six, he first describes himself. He then says what they're doing well, and then he says what they are doing wrong, and he ends each letter in the same way. So that is a brief overview of the seven churches addressed in the Revelation. And when we return tomorrow, Pastor Brogy will move into chapter two and begin an in-depth look at the church at Ephesus, who although at one time was a church on fire for the Lord, 
is now charged with having lost its first love. To listen again to today's study, part one of When Your Love Is Gone, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV4. And when you do contact us, would you consider helping with a one-time or recurring gift? Your support of Search the Scriptures allows us to introduce those who don't know Jesus Christ to Him and to grow believers in their walk with the Lord. For more information, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at When Your Love is Gone. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.